0: If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Fruit Thought Podcast. Before we get into the show today, I would like to take a minute to tell you all about Wondrium. Wondrium is a great learning platform. It has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of classes, lectures, and documentaries. It really does have something for everyone, from histories on ancient mythologies to learning classical Greek to modern history, or even if you're into biology, intro to biology classes, Einstein's relativity theories, classes on writing, classes on playing music, classes on chess. It's got so many great classes, and as I said before, it's got documentaries as well, so it really does have something for everybody. I have to say, it is fantastic. You can really learn a lot from these professors who are world-leading professors, by the way. So go uh, sign up for your free trial with the link that I have below, and I think you will really, really enjoy everything that is on this platform. It is phenomenal. I love it, and you will all love it as well. Now, on with the show. Alexander Isayevich Solzhenitsyn... I never really get tired of pronouncing Russian names, I I must admit, was born in 1918, very shortly after his father died. He was born in a small town in the Caucasus, uh, in the mountains of the Caucasus, uh, called Kislavudsk. But uh, not long after his birth, he moved away to a city south of Moscow, a smaller town, And he lived an extremely tough life. Um, His mother, if I remember correctly, was a stenographer. um, And maybe that was his father was a stenographer. And his mother was um, living a very hard life trying to provide for them. They moved essentially from hut to hut. And even once, they lived uh, in a stable. In 1938, so when he was 20, Solzhenitsyn attended the Rostov University, where he studied mathematics and physics. Even though from a very young age his teachers could tell that he loved reading and writing, uh, physics and mathematics was a safe choice for continued employment in Russia. But not long after he did and he exited uh, the university, he was drafted by the military and then uh, shortly after that, of course, had his prison internment in the Gulag Archipelago. But as I said before, even during his time studying uh, the physics and mathematics, he was deeply attracted to literature, so much so that he also enrolled in courses through Moscow University. His teachers, having noticed his passions for the written word, Alexander uh, even tried his hand at stage acting for a little bit during his time in college. He married in 1940, and after his graduation in 1941, he joined the Red Army, becoming a uh, artillery officer and being promoted to captain after the Battle of Leningrad. Of course, he did spend some time as an enlisted man, and he writes about it in some of his stories, talking about how humiliating it was and how denigrating it uh, is to be a, an enlisted soldier in the Russian military, and he commiserates about his many of his decisions he made during his tenure as an officer in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. And it's even more dramatic when you realize that some of the stories he writes about um, he experienced himself, it shows the groupthink mentality of uh, officers and how easy it is to fall into these positions of powers. He says in his book, I tossed around orders to my subordinates that I would not allow them to question, convinced that no order could be wise, wiser. In another portion, he says, I was a superior human being, seated there. I heard them out as they stood at attention. I interrupted them. I issued commands. I addressed fathers and grandfathers with the familiar downgrading form of address, while they addressed me formally. I sent them out to repair wires under shell fire, so that my superiors would not reproach me, Andreishin died that way. I ate "'my officers' rations of butter with rolls "'without giving a thought as to why I had the right to it, "'and the rank-and-file soldiers did not.' He goes on to list many of his different flaws, and then uh, he realizes, this is where he realizes that the line crossing good and evil crosses right through every human heart as he's looking back and reflecting over the decisions that he made, and when he reflects back over the decisions that other people made that he knew outside of prison or or all these different contexts and situations that he knows people, people that are good people, and he says, no, even these people, the line dividing good and evil crosses through every human heart. Everybody is given the opportunity to do evil, to be evil, to partake in evil. Everybody is given that opportunity, and that line cuts right through our hearts. It's a revelation that very few people had, yet one that he was perfectly suited to understand when he was imprisoned in what he would call the Gulag Archipelago. Yet before that, he was before he was an officer, having been granted that ability because of his degree in mathematics, the position which troubled his conscience so severely, and the position in which he served until his arrest in February of nineteen forty-five. One of the reasons he was given his promotions was because of his advanced, uh, advanced degree, and um, and it. While he was there, his conscience was very clearly troubled. He writes about it in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He spends chapters talking about it, um, and it's interesting how his decisions earlier in life played into his decisions that he would allow him to have the revelation and it's very often that it works out these ways um some people call it karma other people just call it divine providence but in 1945 in february specifically he was arrested and for what was he arrested In his own words, uh, in a speech that he gave accepting the Nobel Prize for some of his writings later on, he says, I was arrested on the grounds of the censorship had found during the years 1944 to 45. In my correspondence with a school friend, mainly because of certain disrespectful remarks about Stalin, although we refer to him in disguised terms, not having enough evidence, or, or that's the end of the quote, Not having enough evidence with uh, those remarks, though, they ransacked his early writings and reflections um, and just some journal injuries that he had, other notes, um, and they still did not find sufficient evidence by the law for a formal prosecution. So in compliance with the common procedure of the day uh, in the late post-war Soviet Russia, he was simply sentenced to eight years in the Gulag a lighter sentence compared to those that would come about when soldiers, he just calls them tenors, were just thrown about. So he only received eight years, which was a relatively light sense, uh, sentence, especially uh, in the 50s and 60s when people would be getting given 25-year sentences. Regardless, he was just, just sentenced, kind of, uh, as I imagined, kind of like how people are just put on bail, and if they can't pay the bail, then they stay in jail, Uh, That rhymes, so you know it's true. So he was just simply sentenced to eight years in the gulag, um, and these were private correspondences. They weren't public documents. They weren't uh, articles released to the world. They were just letters written to his friend Nikolai Vakievich, uh, and he was charged with anti-Soviet propaganda. Article 58 of the Criminal Code something about which he speaks in the Gulag Archipelago once again, in the chapter on the interrogation process. Here's a a passage from him. Um, The principle of our interrogation consists further in depriving the accused of even a knowledge of the law. An indictment is presented, and here, incidentally, is how it uh, goes about. The guard slaps the paper down and says, sign it. But the prisoner says, it's not true. The guard says, sign. The prisoner says, but I'm not guilty of anything. It turns out that you are being indicted under the provisions of Article 5810, Part 2, and 5811, or 58, Part 11, of the criminal code of the Russian Republic. The guard will again scream, sign. But the prisoner, uh, but these do, uh, what do these sections say? Let me read the code. And so it goes on. That That's the end of the passage there. Um. And so it, it goes on, though. Uh, he continues to expound upon how the prisoners fight against um, what the guard is bringing to them, but the guard is not revealing the code. They would give excuse after excuse. They would say, oh, well, I don't have a copy here. You'll have to ask my boss. And they said oh, I'd like to talk to your boss. Like, oh, well, the code isn't written for you anyways. It's written for us, and I can just tell you that... Uh, This is exactly what you're being charged with, and that is exactly what Articles 5810 Part 2 and 5811 of the Criminal Code of the Russian Republic say. But if you continue to disagree, they'll just continue to not give it to you. They will coerce you, and they will uh, torture you even until you finally confess to the crimes that they never actually committed. In his book, it is it can become quite grotesque at certain points when he would describe some of the things that they would do. They would never let you sit down, so prisoners would have to stay in like a three-foot-by-three-foot room for days. Never allowed to sleep, never allowed to sit down, never allowed to do anything but just stand there until they finally come in and ask you one day, ''Are you ready to confess?'' And they would say, yes, absolutely, I'll do anything that gets me away from it. The chapter that I'm on now is called The First Cell and The First Love, and it talks about how grateful these individuals were who were sentenced into the archipelago, how grateful that they were to actually finally get sentenced. By the end of the interrogation period, they... Did not know that they had essentially forgotten what it was like to be in contact with people. Solzhenitsyn himself is reported to have spent months in the interrogation process, and it was just the things that they would do are just beyond inhumane. And so, when and a lot of it had to do with deprivation of sleep and deprivation of positive interaction with other humans, so they love it. it. he he reflects back and says it's it's not love but there is no other word that can describe the feeling other than love when you finally get into your first cell even though it's small and it's stinky but you get to see other people and you get to talk with other people and there's just nothing there's no other emotion that is anywhere near that feeling and so i must call it love and so Solzhenitsyn goes through this process. He's he's charged with anti-Soviet propaganda, um, and he says, well, I didn't do this, and and yada, yada, yada. And so it goes, and he is um, sentenced. And during his tenure in the camps, uh, he switched about locations, um, and sometimes he was in work camps as a mathematician and a scientist. He received a tenure in some special prisons. Then in 1950, he was sent to the camps intended for political prisoners where he did the hard labor of brickwork and and mining and some masonry and other things like that. Very hard meant for political prisoners. Uh, It is also here, uh, and this is in the 1950s is uh, close to the end of his tenure. uh, He develops a tumor and it was operated on, but he found it and it was months or even years later that it was actually operated on. So they let it grow very large. And when his eight years were up, he was not released back into society, though. Instead, he suffered his first exile. Um, And no new charges were brought up to justify this decision. He was given the sentence of eight years, even though, by their law, they didn't quite have enough evidence to actually convict him. So he was just sentenced. But no new information was given. No new uh, information had come to light. He was just exiled. Uh, Simply, that's just what it was. That is just what you expected. So, he was sent to Kaktarek in the south of uh, Kazakhstan, where he lived for years until Stalin's death was announced. And during this period, his cancer was ravishing his body to the point uh, where he was fighting death and nearly died in 1953. In 1954, he was rapidly cured in what he would consider uh, for the rest of his life as a miracle. And he had recently converted away from his atheism back into faith in God. You see, he spent his time in... um, the the Russian military and and he talks about some of the interactions that he had uh, as a prisoner when he was still a, a staunch socialist uh, revolutionary supporter um, you know he spent his time in the Russian universities and in the Russian military and so he was completely atheist and he believed that. Communism was the way to go, which is why he was so anti-communism after he got saved and in his writings he was so anti-communist because he knew he saw firsthand and even partook at some points in the mental anguish that is this complete ideological consumption. And, and a lot of times that ideological consumption takes the form of these socialistic tendencies because it's so appealing to the rational mind. It's so appealing to our even our senses of emotions, of what is just and what is fair. It's so appealing to that, but these ideas, because by nature they are so ideological, they sound so good and they sound so appealing, yet they don't work in reality, they often lead to these kinds of environments. Regardless, He was rapidly cured when he converted, and he wasn't, uh, he was, I, I believe the Russian Orthodox Church is, is Catholic, uh, tentatively, I'm not positive about what exactly they believe, but that's what he converted to, the Russian Orthodox Church, and he was a starch, uh, Orthodoxy man, um, and so there's later on in his life, he does an interview where he's kind of considering some of uh, the reforms that were taking place and the modernizing of some language. And he was actually somewhat in support of that, which was a surprising revelation for a lot of people in the West because he was so like arch-traditionalist. Um, he was so staunchly uh, existing in the traditions of the the church because he was so... And it's a justifiable thing. He had experienced the dangers of revolution. And at the time, there was this uh, modernization of a lot of religions. And so he was very wary of that. So he was so um, uh, opposed to a lot of the reforms that took place because of just his experience with what it's like to be revolutionary. Regardless, cancer is cured. Amazing miracle. um And he lived on for the rest of his life, and I believe he dies of old age. Um, But during his time in Kazakhstan, uh, he was a teacher. He taught mathematics, and he taught um, some physics at a high school. He was very recently remarried to his wife, uh, who he married earlier on. But during his time in the Gulag, they got divorced, as many people did, because uh, the wives were threatened. And uh, a lot of times he talks about in the chapter, I believe, called Blue Caps, he talks about what some of the prison guards would do to the wives of those they were trying to imprison to kind of get them to uh, turn in their husbands and confess on their husbands. And, and so, uh, or a lot of times if they were the kind of political prisoners that was Solzhenitsyn, um, they would threaten them, and, and so... They were all sometimes they're just forced to divorce just literally to survive. So they got divorced and then they got remarried and um afo- unfortunately they got divorced again later on in his life. And I'm not exactly positive, but for some reason, uh his first wife, Natalia, was maybe just miffed by his public fame and, and kind of had a, a, a dour opinion of him that I, I don't quite understand. I'd have to look into a little bit more to understand that. Um, but he did kind of go from, very quickly, from this um, unknown political prisoner to uh, a, a high school teacher to overnight, essentially, a famous in Russia author when he published um, One Day in the Life of Ivan uh, denazovich And it was widely and critically acclaimed. He quickly rose out of his anonymity and became a prominent figure, uh, especially in the West. But it didn't take long after that for him to become exiled once again. This time, it was really, um, it was for life. Essentially, uh, I believe in the late 80s, early 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, he was actually able to return and only lived a couple of years before his death back in his beloved land. Um, And so, but when the KGB got a hold of the manuscripts of um, the Gulag Archipelago, he was exiled. Uh, Solzhenitsyn would live out many of his, the rest of his life essentially in Switzerland and in the U.S., Um, but before we continue on, it's it's very important that we speak about his conversion, I think, and a little bit about his religion. Um, when he had cancer, uh, he was not anticipated to live much longer, but he did survive. And very near the time of his remission, he had reconverted, as I said, to the Russian Orthodox Church. And there's a, a, a fantastic, um, what's it called, um, interview with a man named Joseph Pierce, uh, who also wrote a great article about Solzhenitsyn called uh, "The urge to be Christian." But I wa- I want to read you this passage of this um of this uh interview, uh, a transcript for that. Pierce a- Pierce asks him, uh, "Do you feel that many of the problems in the modern world are due to an inadequate grasp of spiritual and philosophical truth by the population as a whole?" And Solzhenitsyn replies, "This is certainly true." Man has set for himself the goal of conquering the world, but in the process loses his soul. That which is called humanism, but what would be more correctly called irreligious anthropocentrism, cannot yield to the most essential questions of our life. We have arrived at an intellectual chaos. And I think that is uh, exactly right, and it, it held true... Then I believe this was probably in the 80s or the the 70s, and it holds true now. We have arrived at a intellectual chaos. People don't know what to believe anymore. They don't know what is true. They don't know what is false. One of the most notorious parts of the Soviet Union was the lack of truth presented in their media. Their media was 100% controlled by the government and people only saw on the news what the government wanted them to see. And it's not necessarily our governments that's doing that. It's it's a lot of people. It's the media itself. It is the government, it's businesses, it's companies like Twitter and Facebook that you you don't know what to believe anymore. Uh, I think I think this is a quote by Denzel Washington. I could be wrong, but he says, "If you watch the new, or if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. If you watch the news, you're misinformed." And there's a simple cure for that, obviously, um, doing your own research. But that's hard to do. But outside of the realm of just news, and outside the realm of um, intellectualism, people are also in a spiritual chaos because. I think this is especially true for people of my generation. I think I'm generation Z. Um, they they know that there's something out there. They have this cry for something more. And so they think, well, maybe I am actually a man trapped in a woman's body. Or maybe I am this. Maybe I'm gay. Maybe I'm, I'm all of these different buzzwords that we have now. Um and they have a spiritual chaos because they're told their whole lives well, the truth is actually not in what was traditionally called metaphysics, uh, which is what C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about metaphysics. It's it's not in the spiritual world. Your problem is with your brain. Your problem is with your intellect. Well, that's not true. You actually can't build upon your intellect until you've built upon your spiritual life. Your your the metaphysics of our universe. You can't you can't. It's like I I talked about this in the book of Ecclesiastes, you can't actually attain knowledge and understanding until you have attained wisdom, and wisdom is inherently a spiritual thing. When you look at all of the greatest physicists, the greatest scientists, even the greatest philosophers of especially our modern age, when you look at them, they're actually all Christians, all of them believed fervently in God. And because of that inspiration of the reality of nature, they, they were desirous to learn more about that nature that our Creator gave us. And I think Sol talks a lot about that as well in his works, in his books. The spiritual corruption, he talks about that uh, actually in the same interview. The, spi- the nature of his works in a spiritual sense and in an intellectual sense as well, yes, but of philosophical notions that are the repercussions of these physical ideas. And I think it's a beautiful thing when he calls it irreligious anthropocentrism, uh, uh, a complete lack of religion and a focus on ourselves, on humanism. It's an internal focus, and it cannot yield the answers because when we do that, when we reject the process and uh, the conquering of the world and losing our souls, we become humanist, and then we have an intellectual chaos. And we have that, but right now, specifically, we also have a a spiritual chaos as well. But um, to continue on with Solzhenitsyn... Um, after uh he was exiled into uh Switzerland uh he spent time in the west he he talked a lot about what he called the anthropocentrism of the rest of the west um and he wrote many 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 more books and um at this time with this revelation in many of his books about russia and and about uh, it's history. He writes books on the uh, the Russian Revolution of 1917 called The Red Wheel. Uh, of course, he writes the famous Gulag Archipelago. He writes a book called 1914, I believe. Um, but he goes to the West. He's given an honorary literary, uh, literature degree um, by Harvard, and um, he moved to the U.S. He spent a little bit, like I said, he spent some time in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, before Stanford University, Um and then, in nineteen seventy four uh, Yuri Andropov actually started a huge what we would call today disinformation campaign against him and this is actually um essentially live I had actually just, I actually just pushed the pause button did a little bit more research into him and um, so they actually wrote a lot of articles and books about him uh, to try to discredit Solzhenitsyn, and um, his family cut communications with the Soviet dissidents, and uh, his wife, the memoir that his wife actually wrote, seems to actually have been written by the KGB. They sponsored a series of hostile books about Solzhenitsyn, and one of the ones that's on that list of books is actually uh, the memoir published by his first wife. Uh, which I think is a very interesting insight, um, and I thought it was very prevalent to, to read that to you guys. But very quickly, um, Russia said, nope, we're not, we're not going to allow this guy to speak about us in a very classic uh, Soviet-style, Soviet thing of doing. Uh, they said, nope, absolutely not. We cannot have this person talking bad about um, our politics, about our policies, so we're going to do everything that we can to discredit him. And... Um, then he, he essentially, to my understanding, after after this, after he wrote his books, um, you know, he wrote, he got the Nobel Prize for, uh, for literature, um, and he lived more or less a, a quiet life of, um, not necessarily quiet because he'd give speeches and he wrote books, and, but he lived a life, um, of talking about ideas, about sharing his experiences, um, exploring um, the concepts that make up our, our world and, and make up the problem that was communism, and and exposing that. Uh, I said, um, on the day that he was exiled to Zurich, he wrote, of course, the article, Live Not by Lies. Uh, he very dearly loved his Russian brothers and his, his motherland, um, And eventually he would return there. In 1990, uh, his Soviet citizenship was restored. And in 1994, he returned to Russia um, with his wife. um, And he lived there until his death. Um, And he died um, in 2008. Uh, He was aged 89, so he lived there for a a little bit over a decade in the last years. Um, And yeah he was a novelist an essayist a historian um he wrote some amazing books it's this this book uh the gulag archipelago which i guess for now for the end of this i'll do a little bit of a, re- a book review on that um it's it it it's one of those books that really just like impacts you in a way that's almost beyond words because you can't quite imagine, um, what, what was done. And, uh, let me actually just read a couple of passages from it. And so you can see, I have my, my copy here. It's, it's, it's gotten quite beat up already, unfortunately, but I've got tabs in it. And for those who are watching on YouTube, I, I, I rarely highlight a book, but I have highlights all over this book. I'm about halfway there, halfway through the, halfway through the book. Um, like I was just saying, it's one of those books that's just, you can't, you can't believe it until you've read it. It's, it, it, it reminds me kind of the passage of uh, Jesus said, I was saying you were dirge and you did not cry. And I, um, and look like what C.S. Lewis says about grief, a grief observed and, and just ob- observing some of the stuff just kind of, it's going to the house of mourning kind of like I was reading that in Ecclesiastes, I did that on the Ecclesiastes episode, um, Going, it's better to be into the house of mourning than in the house of laughter. Sometimes, because it's just from there you can learn about what it's like. and And reading this book is like, man, it, it is amazing that I live in in a in a world that is not this. Um, but his his prose in it is is quite beautiful. His language that he has is some of the things that he says is just is just profound. Um, but so this is in chapter two. Although I have no statistics at hand, I am not afraid of erring when I say that the wave of 1937 to 1938 was neither the only one nor even the main one, but only one, perhaps of the three biggest wave which strained the murky, stinking pipes of our prison sewers to bursting. Uh, That's what he kind of calls at the beginning the prison sewers. And this is what... The, t- the title of this chapter is The History of Our Sewage Disposal System, and he talks about the waves that happened of just millions of people being swept in there. Before it, he continues, came the wave of 1929 and 30, the size of a good river ob, which drove a mere 15 million peasants maybe even more, out into the tagia and to the tundra. But peasants are a silent people without a literary voice, nor do they write complaints or memoirs. No interrogators sweated out the night with them, nor did they bother to draw up formal indictments. It was enough to have a decree from the village Soviet. He talks a lot about it, where they just... They request, oh, you know what, we've actually, we got a lot of people here, can we send some to the Gulag? And they're like, yeah, send us 15,000. They're like, oh, we'll send 20,000. And they're like, all right. It's just, the things that were done here was just insane. He says later, then just give me enough paper. There are enough waves to use up the names of all the rivers in Russia. All of the rivers in Russia are, he's got, it. it's just amazing. Uh, Here later on in the same chapter, in the spring of 1922, the Extraditionary Commission for the Struggle Against Counter-Revolution, Sabotage, and Speculation, the Cheka, recently renamed the GPU, decided to intervene in church affairs. And it was called on to carry out a, quote, church revolution to remove the existing leadership and replace it with one which would have only one ear turned to heaven heaven, and the other to the Lubyanka. I read, about, I, I read about and told you about the Lubyanka before, and that's actually where Solzhenitsyn was sent. Originally, um, he was sent to the Lubyanka, and then from there, he was sent on to other things. Um, here, we have a story. Um, he talks about in this chapter what, would, what they considered insects, and Christians were considered insects. Uh, That's what they kind of define them as. And if they were insects, then they could be sent. The other group that was insects was um, the kulaks, the, the, the middle road people, the neither wealthy nor impoverished. And there was a huge revolution against the kulaks to send them. But here, and particularly women who were the most stubborn believers of all and who for many long years to come would be called nuns in transit prisons and in the camps. True, they were supposedly being arrested and tried for their actual faith, but not they were not being uh, tried and arrested for their actual faith, but for openly declaring their convictions and for bringing up their children in the same spirit. As Tanya Kadovich wrote, You can pray freely, but just so God alone can hear. And she received a 10 year sentence for those verses. A person convinced that he possessed spiritual truth. Was required to conceal it from his own children. In the twenties, the religious education of children was classified as a political crime under Article Fifty Eight Ten of the Code, in other words, counter-revolutionary propaganda. The very same thing that Solzhenitsyn himself was arrested. He tells a lot about uh, interrogation, um, and the how that the process that, that happened. I already read you some of that, but um. Here's one that I highlighted. Because you used to tell jokes about the leader. Because you thought there should be a choice of candidates at elections. Because you went into the voting booth only in order to cross out the name of the only candidate and would have done so, except there was no ink in the inkwell. Just all the different reasons that people got arrested. Um, There's one thing that I would like to read to you, um, but I I don't think I'm going to. Um, In chapter 2... The history of our disposal system. Um, he goes through all of the different ways that I believe the 27 or 24 ways in which uh, individuals would be tortured or coerced into um, talking about their crimes that they actually never committed. Uh, maybe it's actually in chapter three. Um, yeah, let's. I'll read the first one and just the first one. Let us begin with psychological methods. These methods have enormous and even annihilating impact on rabbits who have never been prepared for prison suffering. And it isn't easy even for a person who holds strong convictions. 1. First of all, night. Why is it that all the main work of breaking down human souls went on at night? Why, from the earliest years, did the organs select the night? Because at night the prisoner, torn from sleep, even though he has not yet been tortured by sleeplessness, lacks his normal daytime equanimity and common sense. He is more vulnerable. So one of the things that he says is common um, in the the torture, everything that they did was combined with sleeplessness and doing it at nighttime. And um, it's just a a really the book is just a phenomenal book and many of his writings i'm sure are just as phenomenal i there's not a chance that i can get through his whole catalog cuz he's got a lot of books uh, but i you've you've known how much i've talked about lived not by lies uh i've i've already talked about this book with a lot of people and i'm i'm not even all the way done with it yet but i i cannot recommend the book highly enough i cannot recommend you look into this man's life highly enough he was a a, a true example of what it means to stand up for what you believe, and uh, against all odds, against pressures from your government, standing up and living not by lies. It's almost as if he wrote that. Um, and he was truly uh, an inspirational man in so many ways, and I've I've come to admire him more and more and more as I've looked into um, his works, as I've looked into his life more and more. I've just come to admire him even more. And, um, I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of this book and maybe into some of his other works. And folks, before, uh, we end, I of course have another segment to get to real quick, um, reading from our locals, um, supporters and, and community. Um, but, Before that, I have to recommend you guys go get some Philosophical Bean Coffee. Go check out uh, the coffee that I sell. And once again, uh, I highly consider checking out Wondrium. Um, And if you guys have been inspired by this podcast to start your own podcast, then I do recommend Buzzsprout. Uh, The link to the Buzzsprout uh, will be in the description below if you use this link that I have when you guys set up your paid account Um, then you will actually receive a $20 Amazon gift card from Buzzsprout, uh, and so that will be great. So check out Buzzsprout, uh, check out Wondrium, and check out the Philosophical Bean Coffee Company, all the folks that help make this podcast possible. Um, And so with that said, let's uh, see what we've got on the locals. And you guys can, of course, check out with everything else. This will be linked below, and you will also have the opportunity to um, check out the Locals community and get bonus content. I'll be narrating and reading uh, the entire Live Not My Lives article that will only be available on Locals, though. And I have a, a, an article I've been working on for the last little bit that will also be available only on Locals as well. Locals is not necessarily uh, a, a paid thing, Um, You can if you want to support. There will be certain features that will only be available for supporters, but you can also just join and get the bonus content. Anyways. Um, Can you explain to me what the Gulag system was? Yes. The Gulags were the prison internment camps that uh, started under Lenin and gained its reputation under Stalin, but any kind of political dissident, if you were... Uh, staunchly opposed to the Russian Revolution, if you were staunchly opposed to communism, if you were a simple Catholic or a nun or any kind of Christian or a, a kulak, um, you could just get thrown into the gulag system. And gulag is actually an acronym, and I'm going to read um, what that acronym was here because I I don't remember. I know it's terribly tragic of me. Um, but the gulag was... Um, an acronym for according to history.com. Uh, what is a gulag? The word gulag is an acronym for the Russian phrase, or and that was, I'm sure I butchered that, but you have to give me credit. There's it's U P R A V L E N I E, or main camp administration, and that's what it started. Um, that's what it's called. Uh, it started as I said. Uh, under Vladimir Lenin, and then was taken control over uh, by Stalin and got its real reputation for what it would become. Um, But that is what the Gulags are. They were essentially internment camps or similar to concentration camps. Um, But, I mean, a lot of people obviously died there, but they weren't extermination camps. They were just aggressive, hard labor camps. Um, Some of them were just... uh, it's freezingly cold. Um, I won't get into some of the other descriptions because um, it, it can get quite gruesome from the things that happened there. All right. Any other questions? Um, who is this guy and what did he do? Well, I hope that this whole episode answered your question. As you know, Solzhenitsyn was, of course, uh, a mathematician at first. Then he became a famous author. He was a military man. Uh, who was punished for dissidents and, and questioning some of the decisions that Stalin made. Um, he was put into an, uh, this internment camp, the gulags. Uh, he wrote books and, and um, was a philosopher in many aspects, and, and that is who Solzhenitsyn was. Uh, he was quite an inspirational figure. And so I hope that answered your question. Thanks for the questions, everybody. If you want to submit your own questions, go check out Locals uh, right now because now the show is over. So, folks, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you learned something new. I hope you learned something real. Uh, I'll be back next week. In the meantime, uh, check out the Halloween episode that will be coming out on Monday uh, on Halloween. And throughout the week, go learn something new. Go learn something new. And I'll be back. See you next. We'll be right.